how does the sort of creative process of a group of people making a television show intersect with a group of people trying to change culture and perception? How do we, like, create messages that are thoughtful and compelling and don't support shitty behavior? Welcome to Wonderland, where we explore the connections between pop culture, human nature, and social change. I'm Bridget Antoinette Evans. And I'm Tracy Van Slyke. Before we get started, a quick warning. This conversation includes adult language and discussion of sensitive topics, including sexual violence. On our last episode of Wonderland, Bridget and Maya Tusi, a fellow artist and storyteller, discussed how art is inherently strategic. We also learned how artists can work within the entertainment industry to create better stories that have a greater impact in our culture. How do you create efficiencies so that the right storytellers can meet the right executives and right people in the industry? Today, we are wondering what a real partnership between pop culture and social change might look like. To kick off the conversation, we invited two people who are completely immersed in pop culture. So I'm Diana Sun. I'm a TV writer, producer, and a playwright. My name is Rachel Lloyd, and I'm the founder and CEO of Girls Educational and Mentoring Services, GEMS, and an author. Diana doesn't shy away from the big issues in her writing. Her first major play, Stop Kiss, told the story of a hate crime sparked by two women's first kiss. She has written for ABC's American Crime and was co-showrunner of the Netflix series 13 Reasons Why, which tackles bullying, suicide, and rape. And Rachel really gets storytelling, whether it's a TV show or a larger narrative dominating our culture. And she has strong, smart opinions about both. In addition to being an award-winning social change leader, Rachel is a survivor of trafficking, and she strategically shares her story to help audiences see survivors differently. We wondered what might happen if we brought together two people from dramatically different worlds who shared a passion for pop culture and understand its power. Rachel speaks first. And just a warning here, she gets right into her personal experience with trauma as a young person. When I was 13, I think I was watching an episode of A Different World and there was an episode on date rape. And three months before that, I had been date raped and I had lost my virginity and I hadn't told anybody. I mean, I can remember I was eating fish sticks and it was on at like six o'clock in the evening and I was watching it. I'm a big girl. But he's a bigger guy. He might try to make you do things you don't want to do. It wasn't one of the main characters, but I mean, it had this very clear message about like, just because you went out on a date with somebody and I remember I didn't even finish my dinner. I put my dinner down and I walked to the precinct and I didn't tell my mom I was going. I just walked to the precinct and I reported it. So right like that, I think was one of the first really clear examples of seeing a a fictional female character kind of stand up for herself. And then even later on, coming to the States and watching Law and Order SVU, right as a child of rape, seeing this kick-ass, amazing character, Olivia Benson, who is struggling on screen with like, what does that mean that 
right? Like I was a product of something violent and then she's like taking back her power and... Noel Harris, you're under arrest for raping Ashley Tyler. And the attempted murder of a police officer. You're a cop. Who's the bitch now? So Diana, you were a writer for the Law & Order franchise at one time. How did you get into writing? Have you always wanted to be a writer? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was, you know, I was a teenager and living in Dover, Delaware. My parents were Korean immigrants. They owned a drugstore. And then mom had a massive stroke as a result of which she lost her ability to speak and to use half the side of her body. And so many scary things happened after that. You know, she had to have, you know, brain surgery and she had to have, um, you know, she couldn't walk or talk and I had to change her diapers. And then she had seizures and like all kinds of really terrifying things, you know, for an 18-year-old. And my mom was very much the matriarch of our family. So like to have her just be completely um, disabled. Mm-hmm. It untethered all of us, and I just felt would feel just very overwhelmed. Like nothing is promising me that the next moment is going to be better. And so in those moments, I could think about how I would write about that. How would I express, how would I say that? Mm-hmm. And I would write it in my head. It reminded me of something, an uh, uh, interview of you that I read online in which you were talking about a moment when you were in fear for your life. Your boyfriend had beaten you and that you were, you saw stars. And you said, this is just, I, I was seeing stars just like in a Tom and Jerry cartoon. And that you actually came out of that moment and said, that's a great line, right? <laughs> and so, but that ability to pop out of the moment and to say like, here's how I would describe what's happening. So here's how I can leave the moment and become an outsider to this moment, which is what is going to enable me to get to the next moment. Right. I mean, I don't know. I guess there's a protective mechanism in that, mm-hmm. right? Like of being able to, like you said, step outside of yourself. I mean, but I know like I wanted to be a writer when I was like three. I remember writing story. I was always writing stories, stories, stories. I had notebooks of stories. And, and even when I was in the life, I, I was going through a lot, but I was, I read a book every day. And that kind of kept me sane. And so I could escape into these worlds. I think it would be really interesting for Diana to hear about how you're thinking about changing culture when it comes to sexual exploitation of young girls. Like, what's your philosophy? What's your work around that? Um, I feel like we've done a lot. You know, we did... Very Young Girls, the documentary that came out in 2007 and started airing on Showtime in 2008. I mean, Showtime owned it, so they played it over and over and over and over again, which meant it exposed... The Five years ago, we were up to 4 million people who'd seen it, right? We still get emails, I mean, as recently as like a couple of weeks ago, where people are watching it for the first time, and it's shifting their perception. And I think what was really important about very young girls to me was about showing like that humanity and girls as being really silly and and funny and just regular teenage girls and then there's all this other like super super intense trauma that's happening to them and all these terrible things that are happening to them but they're not foreign to the viewer in the sense of like i can't understand a 14 year old girl who says she likes dirty dancing or 
watch Blue's Clues growing up. I mean, we had people write, to, we had men write to us and say, I can't buy girls anymore. I can't go to strip clubs anymore because I see girls as real people. <laughs> little sad it took a movie to do that, but hey, whatever, Progress. right? I mean, yeah, it changed law enforcement's attitude. And, you know, it was important for us. The trafficking narrative had been very much to that point that international girls in shipping crates with guns to their head and chained up. And it was very important for us to do something that was about girls who either were American citizens or who'd grown up at least in America and were trafficked four blocks away from where they grew up. It was manipulation and it was promises and it was because of all the trauma and lack of support that girls who were incredibly vulnerable to it experienced. And it was really important that it was girls of color front and center and that their advocacy and resilience could be an important part of the story, that it wasn't just, look how tragic this is, this terrible thing is happening. It's And when girls get the love and support and services that they need, they flourish and they're amazing and they're rock stars. But that, and then, you know, we've done, we did a song and a music video. I mean, right, like, I feel like the only thing at this point we haven't done is like, Gems the Musical. Um, <laughs> right, we've, we've done an art book with art and poetry from the girls. I mean, we've, we've really tried to put out as many different kind of mediums and, and platforms of storytelling and the girls' voices being front and center and survivors as a whole being, you know, in control of our own narratives as opposed to, and I think a lot of that came from the frustration of the way that media interviews, like, fuck it, we're going to take some control back and and make our own stuff. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if if people are going to tell my story, I'm going to tell my story, right? Like, I'm a, if, the, if people are interested in the girls, they're going to hear from the girls through their poetry, through their art, through however they want to express themselves. So Rachel, what kind of impact are you seeing in pop culture from this kind of storytelling? I mean, we've seen a real change in how trafficking is portrayed. I mean, I'd met with uh, law and order writers for SVU, actually. So, I mean, I talked to them for like five hours, and then like three months later, I'm getting texts from people one night like, it's so weird, I'm watching law and order, and it sounds like they've been talking to you. And they stopped using the teen hooker word. They they did this whole scene where it was like, you know, Alex Cabot is like, well, how many times did you, you know, did you have sex with these men? And, you know, how many men a night, da, da, da. And she's like, so you were raped 7,355 times because you cannot consent to sex and that's a crime against you. And right like that, I mean, there's going to be a lot of people who never see the documentary or who never read the book. And so how can through popular culture, how can those examples be in there? And then in a few years, it would be great to see like a doctor on Grey's Anatomy who happens to have been in the life and, and was trafficked as a teenager, but then like got services and support and now is in a resident. I've got two girls in medical school right now. Mm -hmm. And so normalizing right those experiences as opposed to it just being about like a victim narrative I was just trying to think of the times because it does did remind me of, you know, the times that we have people come in. I was trying to think of it. We had somebody um, from a rape survivor organization come and talk to us for season two. We had a very small staff on American crime. I think there's like six of us, six or seven of us. 
and four of us were women and two of us had been so sexually assaulted. And we all had to, or, or those of us who had not been assaulted, we, we really had to understand deeply. I remember my colleague saying this, she says, you know, as we map this character's choices after he's been sexually assaulted, she's like, you have to understand that you lose your mind. You will never understand the logic of a rape mm -hmm. survivor because it doesn't make sense. You know, the, the notion that a, that a female rape victim would reach out to her rapist and try to befriend him, 100% believable, yeah. credible, happens all the time. And we as writers had to wrap our minds around that in order to get the audience to understand that and to, to find this character's actions credible and to remain invested in and connected in him that we had to ourselves understand that he was going to make choices that didn't make sense to us. I do share with probably everybody in this room a real fascination with how shows get made, right? Like what happens from the moment that somebody says, you know, I've got this idea to, you know, the end of the first season of a project. Mm -hmm. But I'm also really curious about how does the sort of creative process of a group of people making a television show intersect with a group of people trying to change culture and perception. How do those two uh, processes converge? And, and, and at what points are they most organically overlapping or could they? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's several tracks, right? But so one is you have an original idea, right? Um, and you, you meet a variety of producers. You say, here's my original idea. And then you, your producer is going to become your partner, right? So for a network show, your non-writing producing partner is helping manage, you know, the network's demands on you in terms of, you know, they give you note, right? There, there's always um, notes that make sense on a dramaturgical level, just like, okay, great. That's a really helpful note in terms of what I'm trying to achieve, right? So you're telling me that something's not clear. You're telling me that you don't like this character, but I love this character. Mm -hmm. So there's a discrepancy there be between what I intend and what I'm expressing. So great. That's helpful to me. But then there's also this sort of like, well, what don't you find likable about her? Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, and like I find her, I'm in love with this character. So what, you know, and so that's a conversation that, you know, you have with the network, but with your producing partner and the producing partner can kind of like step in and kind of say, well, guys, this is the show we sold you. They're the buyer, right? So it doesn't seem wise to be completely intransigent. There has to be some kind of compromise, you know, going on, but you don't want to give up the essential vision of your show. And marketing departments now are part of the decision making, right, about what gets picked up. And they say they will tell the creative executives, I don't know how to market this show. A lot of times a question that gets posed to us writers is, what does the poster look like? To the writers? Yeah. What does the poster of your show look like? Right. And is that an easy question to Not answer for, for a writer? Not for me. There's something about b being able to reduce the idea 
distill, let us say, right? Mm-hmm. Distill the idea into a single image that somebody can see a bus drive by and go, what's that show? I want to watch that show. Think about The Walking Dead, you know, where you got a zombie. You know, it's just like the single image, you know, just tells me, oh, that's a show that I would like. But also in network television, it's not a meritocracy. It's about what shows they're canceling, what time slot is available, what show is leading into that. Whereas with Netflix and Amazon and Hulu, they, they don't have those concerns. So what happens in the case that a show does get picked up? What's the first thing that happened? Yeah, I mean, well, what does that process look like when you, how do you go from a pilot, pilot. script to we've got a whole season to write? Yeah. And, yeah. And, um, and how do you break episodes? Yeah. Like if you have yeah. a writing staff? Uh, and what's jump? the showrunner for yeah. people who might not know? Yeah. So okay, listeners, um, talking to you directly here. We just threw a lot of questions at Diana, so pay attention. She's about to take us inside the writer's room yeah, so showrunner is, you know, in television, unlike in film, the writer is the boss of the whole enterprise, right? Is the boss of, you know, 150 people. So the the showrunner is the head writer and hires the staff. So based on your budget for writers, you pick like, oh, I can either afford two upper-level writers, one mid and two lower levels, or on my show, I just want four upper levels, don't want to mess with anybody, I don't want to break anybody in or teach anybody how to be a writer, you know, we need to just like go boom right out of the gate. And it also depends on how much the showrunner feels like they're going to let the writers write, right? There are some shows where the writers don't actually write, like that they're in the writer's room and they're breaking, and I'll explain that, but, you know, breaking story, you know, which really means like, so you have a, either a bulletin board or a white marker board, and you have the however number of episodes you've been ordered, 13, 22, whatever, you have episode one through blah, 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 and that goes across the top, right? And then you have on the left side going up and down, you have the characters' names. So you go across, you know, for each character, for each episode, and you sort of just do the real broad stroke. So once you've done that, gotten the big arcs, you know, for the whole season, then you take all the cards down, and then the whole board is used to break, here's episode 102. You know, because the season has to have an arc, right? Beginning, middle, and an end. The episode has to have a beginning, middle, and an end. And your group of writers, that's a democracy. Whoever has an idea can shout it out. People share personal stories. This happened to my best friend, or I remember when my husband and I did this, or you know, and it's up to the showrunner to kind of synthesize the ideas and, and sort of go like, I, this is the best choice, right? And then you write write it on a card or you write it on the marker board. So I wonder, you know, because I was um, doing some research last year for fellowship and I spent time in different writers' rooms trying to understand the culture and the mm-hmm. practices. Like mm-hmm. that, that wall mm-hmm. was so fascinating mm-hmm. to me, the level of structure mm-hmm. in the process. Mm-hmm. And also I, I it hadn't occurred to me uh, what a complete immersion the space was that the writers really, for eight hours a day or whatever length of time, were really just in that space with each other. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the rooms didn't have windows. Mm -hmm. It was very deeply immersive space. So I wonder what happens when, you know, sort of a stranger enters into the this immersive world of of a group of writers creating a show, a stranger meaning... 
you know, a consultant or a movement leader who's coming to talk to the writers or what happens to the space and the atmosphere and the process? Yeah, it will. We become the listeners, right? Because otherwise we're all we're all the participants, right? We're, we're the drivers. But when somebody comes in, a consultant, an expert, you know, then we listen and we ask questions. And most of the time we have enough idea about the character's journey over the course of the season that we have real, like, is this believable? Would she do this? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or, or what's something that this character could do that's very characteristic of a rape victim that most people wouldn't know, right? And then the expert would say, well, it's very common for the rape victim to want to befriend their rapist. And so that we, we really take that into account. There's, most of the time we are trying to get stuff from that person that's going to help us tell story in an authentic way, you know, broaden our understanding of who this character is and, and how their experience has shaped them and is going to affect their decision making. But we also are looking for validation for like, here's what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Here's what we've been thinking. And is that possible? You know, yeah, I had that experience when one of the writers from American Crime for this season mm-hmm. came to me, mm-hmm. and they had some storyline. They do, I mean, they they were already pretty far in. I feel like, and so the character, the the girl who's been um, domestically trafficked, her pregnancy backstory. I was like, eh, that's not really realistic. Mm-hmm. Like, here's how, right? Like, what condom use looks like, and birth mm-hmm. control looks like, and like. Like we spent a few hours talking about this character and I got, I got really invested in her. And then I'm like, so wait, what happens during the end? And then he kind of, and I was like, oh my God, you're going to kill her. And I got really upset and like advocated for like, I don't know, 30 minutes or an hour or whatever and got like kind of emotional. Like you can't kill her. Like why? Stop killing off women in the life. Like every chick in the life ends up dead on TV or in the movies. Like it was super disposable. Like let her get a GD. Let her like go back to her pimp. But at least she's making a phone call at the end of the show. And so there's maybe hope, right? Like it doesn't have to be like happy ending. But if you kill her, that's it. Like she's gone. You know, in the last couple of years, we've had uh, we had two girls murdered in like the space of a year. Mm. And so that was really tough. It just felt like, oh, there's this opportunity to do something with this character where she gets to live and you're killing her off. But I mean, it was clearly had been already decided. decided. But like for me, that was an example of narrative actually not being helpful for advocacy and for like the shifts in public perception and awareness. Well, I, I want to just sort of ask something about that. Um, people, you know, issue experts or whomever is being invited is invited into a room late in the process, yeah. right? Like, yeah. And so are there any situations where somebody, uh, an expert, would be involved in the process of actually breaking the story? I mean, sometimes our experts are writers and are in the room. Right. So I've worked on medical shows where two of the writers had been doctors. Yeah. Squad goals, Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, is that partly curated by you as the person hiring or, or bringing together the writer's room? Oh, yeah, sure. You have yeah, yeah, yeah. You're hiring a person for their experiences. Absolutely. Yeah. Their ability to write and then what they bring to the table. Yeah. 
Um, that's why diversity in every mm -hmm. way is important, right? Because you, you never know what stories people bring. You know, I'm very moved by, you know, your passion, like you wanting to save the life of this girl. Um, it's fictional. Um, no, no, but, but, I, but that's the kind of thing yeah. that I love. To me, it's all the more moving that you care that much about the life of a fictional character because you live in the real life world of that, right? And you, you want to portray a new image for this kind of character. And that's something that I can relate to as a woman, as an Asian American woman. It, you know what I mean? It's like, oh my God, like how? Here we go again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Here we go again. You know, as writers and like, I always feel like writing is an act of desperation. You know, we're just trying to make our way through the story, you know, half the time. But just to remember that for somebody who has made a life out of advocating for people that we are creating characters out of, that there are considerations that we need to bring into the process earlier. You, you know, I do take my shows and like how people write. I take that, you know, pretty seriously. I, I just think that there's, you know, a, a real way of using narrative. And, and I think writers shouldn't necessarily always be subject matter experts when we did very young girls david came in david shiskel who's the director of the movie came in as a director i came in as an advocate i was co-executive producer i had a lot of input and say i didn't get final cut though if i'd had final cut i don't know that the movie would have been as good if david had had full cut and i don't think the movie the movie definitely wouldn't have been as good so, right, like the collaborative efforts of us together, which led to a ton of fights, right, led to his vision, like from a narrative standpoint and things I would have taken out because I didn't feel like it represented the movement in the way, like my my movie would have been not as compelling. And he was able to keep that sense of story because he had some remove from it. And so I think there's real value to folks who are purely coming from a writing narrative standpoint i want to tell the best fucking story that i can possibly tell and make the characters as real as possible but it would be nice if folks came in sooner i want to say thanks so much to rachel lloyd and diana's son for joining us you know, Tracy, I think we really believe that TV shows can do everything that Rachel wants them to do. As it is now, experts enter the writer's room, they weigh in on the process, answer questions for the writers, and then they leave. But what if we could get to a point when people like Rachel Lloyd belong in writer's rooms, working alongside the Diana Sons of the world? I could actually feel progress towards that vision today. Just in the brief time they were together, you got a sense that they learned from each other in ways that will change how they work and the work that they do. Like Diana totally saw how invested Rachel was, not just in a story, but in the fate of a character and how the storyline for that character can reinforce harmful perceptions about the people she loves. Right. And for Rachel's part, I think she was very excited to hear Diana talk about experts who write for TV shows. You know, I think she left here and started writing a treatment for her very own show. That is so fantastic. I would love to see that show. I feel like just from this brief exchange, these two women are going to create some unforgettable pop culture. 
So now that we've learned how new TV shows can be made, let's talk about what gets in the way of making TV truly transformational. In our next episode of Wonderland, Rolling Stone culture critic Sean T. Collins and activist and storyteller Nayatara Sen talk about the traps and tropes that we love and hate on TV. We are constantly peddling narratives that are simplified narratives of good versus bad or a particular situation that must be dealt with in a binary way. Next time on Wonderland. Wonderland is made possible with support from the Nathan Cummings Foundation, Unbound Philanthropy, and the Pop Culture Collaborative. Nancy Vitali produced the series. Destry Sibley is our editorial producer. Duff Harris is our sound engineer. Rigoberto Lara is our research assistant. This episode was recorded at the Awareness Group Studios in New York City. Special thanks to Kevin Plesner, Jennifer Aleman, and Jerome Hairston. Visit our website, thisiswonderland.us, for resources to develop your own culture change strategy. There are photos and videos of our conversation with Rachel and Diana, and links to the film and television shows mentioned in this episode. 